Before I start the show, I want to take time to shout out the Virtual Speed and Performance Clinic, sponsored by Simply Faster. If you haven't signed up, get to it, as the price point and the content are just simply too good to pass up. Take $15 off at checkout when you use my personal code, FTGUPOD15, at checkout. Again, that's FTGUPOD15. The guest list is phenomenal, and the topics that will be covered will hit just about every area of athletic development. Oh yeah, did I mention there's an opportunity to win a lot of free stuff, such as a free lap timing system to validate training, VMAX Pro to measure bar speed and also validate training. This offer is simply too good to pass up, so make sure you check out the show notes for links to the site. Now, on to the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. This week's guest is Ben Yanes. Man, what a great episode, covering a variety of things from both the macroscopic and microscopic. We start by talking about how models are useful and at the same time flawed. Ben gets into specific discussion points centered around ventilation, and this naturally leads to many of our later talking points. These talking points later on are centered around the concepts of overcoming and yielding, and we discuss how perhaps you may bias or work towards different ends of the spectrum, and how we can naturally build more athletic profiles in our athletic development means. So this is a great episode with a lot of quality. So without further ado, get your notepad ready, and let's get to the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and my guest today is Ben Yanes. And I have to start out by saying that's a great name. It just flows off the tongue. Uh, it sounds like, I don't know, you could be a villain, you could be a hero, something like that, but something noteworthy. So Ben Yanes. And, you know, I, I found this guy on social media, started following his post, and he's got so many quality posts out there that just really get your your wheels turning and spinning. And he just, he just puts out a lot of things that make me think. And that's really why I kind of wanted to get him on today. I think he describes himself as a personal trainer, but he's a lot more, I believe. Uh, he's got a lot of offerings that we'll also talk uh, about at the end of this podcast. And I think he's got some big things in the works. So we're going to get into a lot of movement strategies and exercise selection and just a lot of things in between. I think he likes the talking points and I like them too. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to pass it over to Ben, let him kind of introduce himself, and then we're going to get going to the nitty gritty after that. Yeah, what's up, everyone? And Jesse, thanks for having me on, man. Super fun to, to do these things. Just love to kind of ramble on about the stuff I'm interested in. And so, yeah, again, thanks for having me on. I am a personal trainer based in New York City. I work out of Hype Gym in, in Union Square, if any of you know that gym. Most of what I do there uh, is just one-on-one -on -one private training. But as you briefly mentioned, um, I have a few other things going on kind of in the background, and a lot of that has to do with Online coaching, um, specifically, I mostly work with powerlifters, but, you know, over time, it's, we're kind of transitioning here now to where I'm working more and more with more and more people uh, on the hypertrophy side of things, um, just because, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of the issues that powerlifters are running into is just exercise selection. And a lot of times it comes down to taking them in a little bit more of that direction. But so yeah, work with powerlifters, people who just want to look good um, online on a monthly basis. And then beyond that, I do consulting for mostly personal trainers, actually. So I'm in kind of the education realm of things. I have a new platform that's launching within the next couple of days here 
Uh, I'm not sure when this will be out, but yeah, we filmed the first episode already and that's going to be basically an educational platform. So kind of have my toes dipped in a few different buckets, but it's basically personal training and then talking about things that revolve around personal training and biomechanics and anatomy and all that stuff. Yeah. And just the powerlifting aspect that you just talked about before we jump into this first talking point, I can agree. You know, I got into powerlifting a couple of years ago and I just have a different perspective on the way that the body functions. And I'm just thinking about planes and all this stuff all, all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I'm just not viewing it typically through a, a traditional powerlifting lens. And I feel like sometimes that's a, that's a good uh, thing. It's not that traditional methods aren't good, but sometimes I just feel like some of the things that you're giving credence to, you, you can do so much if you're just willing to look a little bit outside the box. And then you're talking about probably just increasing. I'm a big person about the, the neural aspect of things, increasing neural drive to certain uh, musculature uh, or certain joint actions, which uh, we don't have to get into today because I do it all the time with guests. But that just goes through my mind all the time whenever I'm at powerlifting meets and I'm watching these uh, different strategies and ideas. So that bounced off the top of my head as you were talking about that. But this first point was too good to pass up because it's something I myself have battled uh, with a lot. I work with a lot of adolescents and I work with kids that are just learning to move a barbell. And I work with a lot Mm -hmm. of kids that are trying to be athletic in nature. So I'm kind of their tier one. I'm getting them started. So I have to teach a lot of movement-based strategies. So you have to have some type of model whenever you do things. But at the same time, I feel like sometimes we get so caught up in what we see with our own eyes as a coach or what we even see as a lifter in video analysis as to the perfect model being displayed before us. And I feel like we miss a lot because anything we see is subjective in nature. If you think about it enough, it's through our own lens, through our own eyes. So this is just a really big point for me uh, to start with. And it's going to lead us down a really nice road here. So I want to start out by talking about the idea of teaching towards a model of movement and its limitations and why we might need to teach toward a model of movement some of the non-negotiables per se, and then some of the weaknesses of doing so in the long run. So thinking about generalized movement, why we need to teach towards it, uh, and then how we can also spice it up and individualize it. Right. Yeah. Big questions there. Um, Can go a lot of different directions with this, but go everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I guess I'll just kind of start with the idea of like the reason that you make models is to simplify things to, to a degree, right? Because there's so much complexity in general across really any, any domain. It's like, there's always another layer probably somewhere, but specifically when it comes to anatomy and biomechanics and, and coaching movement, there are so many things as you referred to that we just don't really um, see in real time. Right. So you know, what happens if you increase someone's range of motion by 20 degrees at a joint? Um, Well, you could say, okay, we observe like a synovial fluid shift that allows us to move more or less in one direction. Um, And so that's like the conformational change that we saw, but you don't actually know that that happened. You are just assuming, and you could even view that as like a microcosm of a model, right? Which is essentially to create these theories that seem practically applicable, 
um, so that we can kind of grasp different concepts maybe that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. And I think it would be a total disaster if no one made any models ever, because then we'd all just be second guessing ourselves all the time. But I think it's important to realize that like, regardless of what model you choose to subscribe to or what model you create, you're going to be wrong pretty much inevitably all the time at some point. So, you know, a model to me is just this lens that we use to understand the world around us and whatever topic you happen to be talking about. Um, there are limitations to that and there are great things about that. The great thing about that is that it gives you a, a starting place, right? So even if your model is at point A now and a decade from now, it'll be at you know some other letter far down the, the alphabet there, you're still gonna be at a place where like, some things are more correct than others, but inevitably, because it has to be simplified to a degree, it's going to be incorrect. Now, the benefit of that is like, you have some degree of confidence in what you're doing and you can kind of sift through what works over time and what doesn't, and you refine your model to become more accurate. So it gives you again, this framework, this larger framework within which you can kind of operate. The obvious downside of that is that you're, at least for me, is that you're tied to specific things, right? Whether it's emotional, whether it's results driven, which is, you know, at the end of the day, it's still pretty emotional and subjective. Um, and, I, and I like that idea, that point that you mentioned about most things being subjective, because, you know, two plus two is really just two plus two equaling four is really our interpretation of like, essentially mathematics and how we can understand math. Um, but even if you go a layer deeper, like how does two plus two work? Oh man, that's, that's a whole nother discussion, right? So a lot of these things we're taking at kind of face value. And so, you know, again, the limitations that are created with the model is that like you're tied to something and over time, this has changed for me. Um, I think at first, because of all the people that I was learning from, all of them would always talk about their models and their frameworks. And I think a framework is really, really important at least to begin with. But a lot of the time, the people that you're learning from are selling you something, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? So, you know, you, you quote down, I was going to yeah. use it at the end, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, but like, you know, at a certain point, like I'm doing it too. Like I'm selling myself, I'm selling my information. And so it's, again, there's nothing inherently bad about that, but you do have to understand that people are selling something. So the fact that they're selling something means that they need to create something to sell. And the fact that they need to create something to sell means that like they have to tie themselves to something. And the fact that they have to tie themselves to something means that at various points and in various contexts, they're going to be like abhorrently wrong about a lot of stuff that, which doesn't mean, you know, that they're not going to be right about others. But the point being that like, Initially, when I started learning all this stuff a number of years ago, I was really, really tied to this idea of the model. I thought it was super cool. Okay, so our way we simplify things. I rate this whole thing out and I call it a model. I, I think, though, that over time, I've moved in the direction of just realizing all of those limitations and that as long as I had a general guideline for like where my thoughts go generally speaking and how I process different bits of information that I don't necessarily even really need a model to go off of or to base my processes off of. I think that a model is great for organizations. So eventually if you want to call, you know, a project or a book, a model, I think that's, that's fine. But again, I think a model also kind of 
creates maybe a, a bit of a stronger attachment to what you currently understand or what you currently subscribe to. And that can be very difficult to kind of steer away from. Right. So, um, you know, I used to view, um, let's, you know, just to give an example, like I used to think that like, um, the squat, the bench and the deadlift, when I first started working out, were like the end all be alls of any movement ever. And if you didn't do these three things, like what were you doing? And if I had created a model that was essentially SBD centric, right. And those were the three kind of pillars of my model, like everything falls under the squat, the bench, the deadlift. And I created this whole model and I was subscribing to it for months or years, it would be much, much more difficult to then say, well, in, in this context, this might not actually be the best option for this person. Right. So I find that like tying myself to things in general with any degree of, of strong emotional attachment is probably not a good thing, um, at least in a lot of cases. In some cases, it can really be helpful, um, especially for just, you know, kind of honing in on one topic or another. Um, but to kind of close out this ramble, um, I would say that just over time, I started from a point where I was like, I need a model, I need to subscribe to one. And now I'm at a point where it's like, well, things are changing too much for me to actually subscribe to any one thing. So I'm just not going to call it anything. And I'm just going to try to synthesize information generally across the board as best that I can. That's a, that was a great ramble. And there's a couple of things, you know, I'll just throw in there. Things you said or verify, uh, you don't need validation, but to verify, you know, things I've seen too. As far as like you said, uh, squat, bench and deadlift. I used to be closely tied to the clean and with my athletes because I just felt like, oh, it makes you coordinate your body and then you have to you yeah. know, the force absorption, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying I don't clean with my kids. and I don't want Olympic lifters to come after me after this podcast. The clean is great. We still use it, but it used to be like, you're going to learn to do it this way. Uh, yep. You know, and I just found that I was wasting so much time and I could get the attributes I was wanting out of other things. And I could slowly blend the clean in whenever needed uh, and probably in a more rudimentary uh, manner for the period I wanted for my athletic development. It could be, you know, above the knee and it could just be kind of more of the pop uh, because mm -hmm. we're working kind of from a neuromuscular perspective at that point, I guess you would say during the season, trying to get into the nervous system and just make the muscles fire. So that was kind of going through my uh, mind as you said that, you know, there's a lot of models. And I'll, I'll also say this, I'll read a book and I'm like, I just solved the entire movement universe like everything everything makes sense now you know what i'm saying you feel so good and you go out and you start telling people to do things and it all works and then you find oh three months later i'm like well this makes more sense now and this may it's just like you said you continue to inform yourself like there's so many great systems out there like i talk about caldeets and triphasic all the time i utilize that system uh, often in a variety of manners for and i've had a lot of success out of it you know pat davidson we were talking about pat davidson before man he's got a really intricate system of how he classifies and and models all these different things there's so many great models and we'll talk about i got to use the quote later on because you're, you're going to be selling something here soon but uh, you mentioned your quote but kind of to boil everything down that you were talking about uh i love this quote from musashi it's if you know the way broadly you'll see it in everything so that's kind of what you were getting at like dude you just got to get in the trenches and get in the mud and have some ideas and be willing to paint a little bit and paint your own picture and be willing to be wrong because you're going to be wrong but you're going to feel right a lot of the time when even though you are wrong right as long as yeah. you can believe it you know, it'll, it'll come together over time. Like it's an evolving model is what it is, but kind of what we were getting to there as well as posture. I do believe posture shows a lot. 
uh, about a person uh, neurologically. And like posture follows movement. I mean, joint actions are only possible within certain ranges uh, optimally. And kind of what you, I think you were getting at in the original post was this idea that we're, we're looking at something externally and we don't even really know what's going on internally is basically what you were saying. And we're preaching towards a model. So I feel like that's kind of what we were getting at there to, to kind of bring that all home and put that all together. Uh, so if we can kind of go to our next point, because something that's really reared its head to me in the last year or two is the importance of respiration in movement. I don't know how we walk around without these realizations. If I stop breathing, I'd die. Uh, but it can optimize <laughs> your movement, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, we've all been meatheads and wanted to move weight or whatever. We don't care about airflow, you know, whenever you get in the weight room and you're a kid. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about how respiration can influence movement strategies and can actually change joint actions uh, and your potential. Sure. Yeah. So, and just to kind of just piggyback off of one other thing that you said that I don't want to forget to mention is like the concluding statement there is that you as the person are the model. And because you as the person are constantly changing, the model has to constantly change. If you separate the model from the person, then it's no longer a model. You know, I didn't want to leave that little bit out. I think that's kind of my concluding statement on that topic. But anyway, yeah, respiration, ventilation, all that stuff is really cool. And I think that when people are first getting into that stuff, um, it's really, it seems like voodoo. You're like, wow, I can take a breath and like, you know, my pain goes away or wow, I can take a breath. And I feel now this part of my foot when I walk and it can get really overwhelming, right? Because you're influencing so many different systems with a single breath, with a single inhale, with a single exhale. And, you know, as, as that applies to the weight room, I think it's super helpful from the standpoint of, just teaching people to be a little bit more aware of like the way that they feel not to the standpoint of emotionally, but more to the standpoint of physically, like what are the sensations that they're observing um, within their system? And they don't even necessarily have to do anything with that observation other than just to notice. I think noticing is really, really helpful. And, and once you start to do that, you can start to do it in other movements and breathing is this thing that kind of allows you to bring awareness to, to specific parts of your body. So, you know, how respiration or really what we're talking about is like ventilation because respiration is the intrinsic, you know, physiological kind of mechanisms that occur. Yeah. But ventilation is like, okay, am I breathing in or am I breathing out? And so if we categorize those two things a little bit separately, the inhale and the exhale, we can think about the inhale representing this more, you know, what Bill Hartman would call expansive based movement, right? We're, we're essentially expanding the field with which we have to move. We're opening up the space um, inside of the actual thorax and we're getting technically a little bit heavier and a little bit bigger and exhalation or what Bill Hartman would refer to as compression or a compression based strategy is the strategy that kind of shrinks things, bring things closer together, um, decreases the amount of volume that we have in the thoracic cavity. And in a lot of cases is what really is the thing that improves our movement options. You can think of the inhale and the expansion as kind of this more stress related response. The easy example that I like to draw on is when you get the shit scared out of you, 
you take a breath in, you don't take a breath of air out. Or when you're getting ready for a big squat, you take a breath of air in, you don't take a breath of air out, right? So it's kind of this, this beautiful thing that allows us to generate more force in a lot of cases, create more pressure, but only in tandem with the exhalation, right? Because one can't really necessarily exist without the other. So just to get a little bit more specific about it, um, within this sort of um, larger framework of the expansion and the inhale versus the compression and the exhale, you have different joint actions that are associated with both of those things, right? And the joint actions that will typically ride along with an inhale are just more broadly external rotation, but you could think of subcategories of external rotation as abduction, as flexion, as supination. Um, and you could think of subcategories of an exhale as internal rotation, most broadly, right? Things moving in toward the midline uh, and as extension and as adduction and as dorsiflexion. So all those things are kind of mouthfuls to take in at first, but when you really break it down, it's basically like, Hey, the exhale is this thing that's going to squeeze. And the inhale is this thing that's going to relax. And it, it, it's interesting how it kind of works oppositely, right? Because you think of the inhale as this chronic stress related posture, right? You mentioned posture earlier. A lot of the times people who are chronically inhaled and a lot of this stuff actually comes from PRI for those that know what PRI is. Those that are chronically inhaled are typically people who are really, really extended through the thorax. They're people who can't seem to really rotate very well. They don't have many movement options available to them. And people who are chronically exhaled, which is basically no one ever, um, would represent theoretically the opposing sort of presentation. So generally speaking, where you're looking to take people is superficially from an external standpoint, from this inhaled state toward this exhaled state. And a lot of the times it's interesting because you'll lay someone down, you know, on the gym floor, on the table. Um, let's say it's, you know, they're, they have a little bit of pain wherever it happens to be. And you tell them to take a slow inhale through their nose. They take a slow inhale and you tell them to exhale out all there. And the exhale will probably last initially for two seconds, maybe one, if you're lucky, uh, or sorry, maybe three, if you're lucky, it'll, it'll probably last one or two seconds. And then you'll be like, that's it. That's it. And, you know, most people will be like, yeah, what do you mean? That, that was the full exhale. And I was like, no, no, no. So let's do this again. So I'll have them inhale. I'll have them do it really slowly. I'll have them focus a little bit more on pursing their lips. And they'll find that when they actually draw all their air out or blow all their air out, they end up exhaling for five, maybe 10 seconds. And at the end of that exhale, you feel really, really uncomfortable, right? CO2 in the blood rises, the start, ribs come down. Yeah, you start like choking to. up, yeah, looking for that air. Um, and that's the body's way of kind of saying like, hey, you know, I, I'm no longer sitting in this inhaled state, which at first feels very stressful. Um, but if you can then start to own that position of exhalation, you start to really, really relax, right? And this is what most meditative practices are really based around is like the exhale, letting the CO2 and the blood build as, as kind of the signal for oxygen to come in after that. And so what you're really seeing with all of these like improved movement options, because, you know, it's not necessarily tied to, okay, inhalation, exhalation, expansion, compression. If you, if you do the exhale, you're only going to get the compressive joint mechanics back. Or if you do the inhale, you're only going to get the expansive joint mechanics. Typically speaking, what a lot of people call this is like neutrality will bring you more of both movement options, right? The internal rotation and the external rotation, the abduction and the adduction. 
And this is the concept of like just getting stacked, right? Getting a rib cage over a pelvis. How do you do that? Well, you probably will cue someone to exhale as long as they possibly can. Own that exhale, maybe pause for a few seconds as they draw in their next inhale. And what you'll find a lot of the times is that simply because of the decrease in the sympathetic tone of this person, you know, they seem to be moving more freely. Um, so just in kind of a broad um, generalization kind of a way, I view now breathing and the ventilation kind of techniques as this way that I can get people to calm down as this way that I can bring more awareness to their system as a whole, um, right. As this tool that I can kind of use when I need it and not necessarily as something that is the end all be all of all movement patterns and all systems in the body. Right. It's just one of many different tools that we have. Um, and I think it's really, really cool, but I also think it's important to understand in the context of like someone lifting weights, you're probably not going to take a world record squatter and put them on the floor and have them do a breathing drill. And like their life has changed, right? You have to get a little bit more specific with that. And that's how, you know, these concepts can be tricky in terms of lateralizing them to actual weight room activities. And there are a number of people who do a really good job of that. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think the breathing thing is an awesome thing to understand and look into. Um, but it is also just one of many different tools, um, that we can kind of gather and, and use on different people when we need it. I was, I was going to get you, I was going to say, damn it, Ben, you're preaching towards a model right there for a second. Cause you're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it was awesome. Yeah. Almost had me. Yeah. I almost had you. No, but, uh, a lot of things stuck out there. Like the first thing, like actually a couple of podcasts I've been doing over, you know, you record and things. So you have all these podcasts that run together. Consciousness is something that I've really been pushing with my athletes as well, because if you're looking at the, the uh, layers of learning, the four different layers, you want to push people towards consciousness. I don't think I'm bad. I don't even know what I'm doing. I, I realize I'm doing something and I realize I'm bad. I realize I'm doing something. And I'm getting pretty good at it. And then I do it and I don't even think about it. And, you know, if yep. we're being honest, most people only are going to get to that level of consciousness. They're never probably going to get to the unconscious where they're extremely good at something. Mm -hmm. uh, but so I'll always push my my adolescent athletes to be conscious and be in the moment. And, and breathing is a great way to do that. And the other aspect of the things you're talking about, you're talking about within the body, I'm thinking about the autonomic uh, processes as well, and how we can actually control those things based off of breathing as well. Um, so it puts you in some of these states you were talking about, like the meditative state and calming them down, because man, you don't know if someone's walking through the door and their blood pressure is through the roof, unless you're going to mm -hmm. you know, measure them for that. So it just accounts for all the stress. And it's a, a great way to kind of dial things back and give you like a ground zero uh, as well. Like even not within movement processes, I suppose you would say it get you ready to move, uh, in my opinion. So that was all great. Going from there, I guess, kind of building back into this, because this is something that's really interested me is the pelvis and the thorax, which you talked about a couple times there. And I'll be honest, that can be so aggravating sometimes working with different individuals. Like, I find that people can squat, but man, the hinge pattern is like something that's just not natural. I mm -hmm. find this to be something that that might kind of work into a couple of concepts that we have here. So let's talk about the pelvis and the thorax and how they're related. And this might also get into some of our areas of breathing, inhale and exhalation as well. The thorax and pelvis, you can kind of view as these two structures that you can link many similarities to and in between, but really 
they're these two structures that need to always constantly kind of be responding to one another. Um, and the thorax and the pelvis are so important and they're talked about so much because they are the, you know, the most central piece of the body. They're the two things that everything else kind of branches out from, right? So if you don't have, you know, the old saying is like proximal stability for distal mobility, like that's, that's, it's a, it's a good saying. It's a, I, I like the saying generally speaking, um, but that's where that comes from, right? Is like, if I can't control my pelvis in space, if I can't control my thorax in space, it's probably not going to be a great situation for my extremities, my arms, my legs, my feet. So just, you know, more broadly, um, I think that with thorax and with pelvis considerations, we need to think about, you know, again, how those two things move and, and respond to one another. So I think a lot of the problems that come from, because this, I always kind of want to make things more practically applicable and specific to like what can actually be useful to people. A lot of the, a lot of the times those things in the weight room need to move together, right? They don't need to move oppositely. A lot of time in sport, they need to move oppositely, right? Which is, yeah, which is kind of this discussion of like, you know, what would you even have, you know, your athletes do all the sagittal barbell stuff. And the answer probably most of the time is no, but you know, and that hurts us. But anyway, in the weight room specifically, since we're talking about that, there's this idea of like the stack, which I kind of refer to in, in the breathing in the breathing thing, the breathing ramble. And the stack is this position or this neutral position rather um, that we have the most amount of movement options from, meaning that if I have, uh, let's just use the example of like flexion and extension, since that's easier to see. If I have the ability to flex my hip and extend my hip, and you know that's that's on an excursion of like this, you know, I'm, uh, for everyone for everyone listening, I'm like making this gesture with my hands, and there's a total excursion that can take place from flexion to extension, and you know my my thorax and my pelvis are completely stacked to top one another. One is not tipped back relative to the other, or tipped forward relative to the other. I'm in a position where I can go to the flexion side of the spectrum. I can access that side of the spectrum. But then I can come back to this neutral position and I can also work through the extension side of the spectrum. And what you'll see a lot of times is that in people's resting posture to, again, bring things back to that word posture, um, which, you know, doesn't tell you everything you need to know, but can tell you a, a good amount. A lot of people are sitting toward one side of the spectrum, whether it be flexion or whether it be extension. And again, you can, you can kind of apply this to any paired joint action in the body. Right. So um, a really good example for people just to kind of think of visually is like a knee. And a lot of people talk about the concept of the hyperextended knee and like, is the knee hyperextended or is it like, you know, is it different from person to person? What constitutes hyperextension? That's a whole nother kind of conversation. But if you look at people's knees, you'll see a lot of the times people have these hyperextended knees, which basically just means that like, if you look at them from the, from a side profile, from the frontal plane, it almost will look like they're doing the Michael Jackson lean forward where like their shin bone almost kind of comes back and their, their heel is behind their knee, right? It almost looks like they're leaning forward in a sense. A lot of the times you'll find that these people can't fully bend their knee, meaning that if they try to take their heel to their butt, whether it be because they have a lot of muscle mass or not, they still can't bend their knee fully, right? And so why is that? 
Well, this person, however they got there, has ended up in a position where their knee is more toward the side of the extension side of things, right? In this sort of graph representation, they've moved from this quote-unquote imaginary neutral position toward this extended position. And so now when they go to flex, they've essentially run out of the excursion that they would have otherwise had available had they remained in this kind of middle ground position, right? So it's not so much that like, you're lacking the total amount of movement. It's just that the total amount of movement has shifted in one direction or another. You mentioned hinging. A lot of the times the people that struggle with hinging, um, a lot of the times those kinds of people are sitting in a static position of flexion, meaning that their, their pelvis is dumped forward way into this anterior orientation. They have quote unquote, these tight hip flexors, this back that's always turning on. And I think the reason that a lot of times these people struggle to, to manage the hinge is simply because they're starting from a position of significant flexion in their hips, which would basically just mean like a relative extension in their thorax. Um, wherein when they go to flex their hips back, which with a hinge happens very, very quickly, the amount of flexion that you have, um, a lot of the times they either feel uncomfortable or maybe they're so far into that, you know, flex hip position that as soon as they go to approximate anything that represents a good amount of, of hip flexion, they just run out of it soon. Right. And so maybe they, maybe they round over their spine. Maybe they just want to squat it instead. Right. Like so many different things can happen, but the whole idea of this pelvis thorax relationship is to get those two things at a point where again, you have that canister, you have that stack so that you can access the flexion that you need and so that you can access the extension that you need. And a lot of times these things with, with hinging and with squatting come down to like, can this person get in a good position before they actually start the movement? Is the setup correct so that this person actually has the opportunity to achieve what we're looking for them to achieve rather than just giving them a thousand cues and, and, you know, trying to set them up in a position where like they have to, they have to concentrate on their foot and on their hip and on their thorax and they're thinking about 10 zillion things. Right. So a lot of the times those things come down more to, in terms of, you know, just from a teaching perspective, setting them up correctly and giving them an opportunity to, um, you know, and maybe that just means like a little cue before they start, like, Hey, tuck your hips. And then like, let's just drop our chest and see what happens. Um, so, you know, of all the different uh, directions I could have gone with that, I guess I'll end up with just like this idea that th the whole pelvis and thorax thing is important because it gives you a place to start from. And if you're starting from a position that is not aligned with where you want to end up, you're either going to see a, a good amount of compensations in a person, or maybe you have to give them more cues than would be ideal. And so they just get confused. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's all about like giving this person the most amount of, of options um, for them to create movement. And a lot of that starts with the, the thorax and, and with the pelvis. Yeah. So just things sticking out to me there. And I think it's going to transfer really nicely to the next point because we're going to talk about the neck and how we can see things in that. And that's just been such a great cue. And you mentioned cue. I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's another thing. I watch people cue and tell people all these different things. And I'm just like, brother, just let them move. Like, you know, like they're, they're going to figure it out themselves too. And then I'm going to coach you, but we're not going to fix it right now in the moment with weight on our back or whatever. That's just not, that's not optimal to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyways, that's what I was, I was thinking about there. And then, uh, again, I've got somebody over here probably deadlifting 
close to 600 pounds and I've got somebody who's doing their first deadlift at the same time sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you watch that person who's trying to attempt their first deadlift and they come up and it's just like, there's, you know, there's my lower body and here's here. And I got there because again, I feel like you're trying to tell me to hinge and I'm just like this. I'm just like, just slow it down. And he, he, he can see what I'm seeing there. Uh, but they're just dumping forward or if they're trying to do that, their hips just go, like you said, just completely and totally. If there was water in it, I'd always tell them it's gone now because we have mm -hmm. no balance between us getting into like what you said, position, because it's only going to be as good as our starting point. Uh, and, you know, we have to work on being optimal from there. So those are just things sticking out to me. And there's just this angle that I'm always looking for. And to me, one of the easiest ways to do this has been looking at the neck especially in relation on something like the deadlift. It can be used on a squat and other things as well, but I really, really, it's helped me a ton on a starting position for people uh, in deadlift. So I'd like to kind of talk about the neck and how we can use it as a telltale sign in the setup of a movement and ensure that we have proper bracing because if we take it back to, let me not mess this up again, ventilation and not respiration, right? You know, that's, that has a lot to do with bracing. And I'm always telling my kids, you know, you need to be tight at the start of a movement because if you're pulling a lot of weight from the floor, you just need to be. Uh, so bracing here and how the neck can ensure that we properly brace. What are some things we're looking for? How can we utilize it? Sure. Yeah. So when we talk about the brace, I think it's important to know that like every aspect of the brace is really going to be uh, connected closely to spinal position and within the spine, right. You have, you have different segments. There are a lot of different vertebrae in the spine, a lot of different joints, but more so to simplify, like you have your, your cervical spine, which can kind of be analogous to your, your lumbar spine. And then you have your thoracic spine, which can be more analogous to your, you know, the S's so to speak, right. Like the sacral area. And the spine being the way it is in terms of its alternating curvatures is always going to respond to itself. So what that means more practically is like, if I have uh, this neck position where, you know, my chin is way up and out, I'm kind of craning my neck upward. Um, I'm, you know, for, for anyone who doesn't know what like extension of the, of the cervical spine would look like, just look toward the ceiling without moving the rest of your body. That's like a strong extension, at least of the upper cervical spine. And I see that it's, it's an epidemic. I see that all yeah. around. I see yeah. it everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the, so we can get into the reasons that that might happen. And there are, there are many, but um, just to finish off the, the spinal thing is because the spine is connected to itself all of those curvatures will always be kind of responding to one another. Right. And this is kind of the root of like how the thorax and the pelvis will work together. Right? Obviously all the ribs are directly attached to the T-spine. That's where the ribs come from. And so anytime that I have a strong extension, let's say in the neck and the cervical spine, I'm going to have a reciprocal flexion under the next, at least couple segments. Right. So if I really extend my neck, what my spine will do to respond to that is it will probably create a little bit more kyphosis or rounding through my, through my thoracic spine. And what that'll do is downstream probably create some form of counter lordosis or extension through my lumbar spine. So the spine will always work in alternating seg segments like that. In that if you extend your cervical spine, it's highly likely that your lumbar spine will come with that. And if you flex your thoracic spine or extend your thoracic spine, the lower aspects of the spine, like the, the S's, the S1 through four or five, whatever you want to call it, um, 
you know, those segments will flex or extend relative to the, to the T-spine. So the spine essentially will always, again, be responding to itself in that if I have an athlete who is doing a deadlift and they're essentially looking at themselves in the mirror or they're looking up like Yuri Belkin does in his deadlift, which Yuri is kind of one of those exceptions, right? A lot of the times what that'll create is a situation where this person is starting from a, a, a position of significant thoracic extension, and hip flexion. Um, and when they either go to flex their hips or extend their hips, they're going to be biased toward one side of the spectrum that might create some form of, of compensation in the movement. So where I actually see this most commonly is with the deadlift specifically, um, just because the deadlift out of all of the, um, movements that you can do, whether it be uh, powerlifting based or not is the one where you can kind of just like tug and something will happen, right? Like you can just push through the floor and, you know, you can kind of get away with a lot of really, really poor technical executions or, or setups. Whereas like with the squat, if you really mess up in the squat, there's a lot less wiggle room as far as like messing up and being able to compensate, right? Like if you flex over in a squat, like the bar is just going to essentially dump you forward. It's going <laughs> to like squish your face. Yeah. But in a deadlift, it's like, I can crane my neck. I can crane my back. I can round over like a cat. I can do any number of things. And a lot of the time it'll be okay. Cause the body's resilient. Yeah. And I just, we're going powerlifting vibes here too. Like I, my kids are great at deadlifting. We're not bad at squat. We're terrible at bench by the way. Uh, so I, I just, <laughs> I just want to throw a, a grenade in the bench sometimes, but no, sure. we, we have to work on it. Uh, but I'm, I'm not bragging, but my kids, I had uh, 11 kid team uh, actually last night and I had five kids pull over 500 pounds uh, in high awesome. school. And, you know, so, and we're just, we're just starting our season. Um, and I, so I have some really good deadlifters. I have one kid that's going to try and break records and everything this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as I was thinking about this and trying to rationalize this, cause we're going to talk about yielding and overcoming here in a minute. And that kind of goes back to all these different things. I was just wondering the deadlift is so like, I feel what you would say output driven. Uh, So like you get the output, like you get to initiate the movement, like you're creating the force into the ground and all these different things. Whereas with a squat and a bench, there's this yielding aspect to things in eccentric loader loading before I get to actually come out of the hole. You you understand what Mm -hmm. I'm saying there? So I was Mm kind of like rationalizing that in my mind. If my programming choices lend themselves better to like output driven metrics such as the deadlift uh or if, if that's something that we could think about because that's a talking point going forward from there so keep that in fresh in your mind i didn't want to miss it because that was a big thing i was mm-hmm. thinking about last night actually on the way home yeah we could definitely get into that um but just to kind of put a cap on this whole spinal thing right like if you have a situation where someone is really struggling to brace and you're giving them all the cues in the world you're telling them keep your abs on keep your abs on tuck your hips you know let your chest fall but their neck is still in a position of that relative extension. Um, their spinal position is not going to change regardless of whatever you tell them to do subjectively. Right. So there's this whole idea of like packing the chin and keeping the chin back and retracting the mandible or whatever you want to say, um, creating a change in the Atlanta occipital joint would be more specific. Um, a lot of that really just comes down to, someone being able to know exactly where to look. So that's like the lowest hanging fruit for me. It's like, is this person number one squatting or deadlifting in front of a mirror and they're looking at themselves or can I actually get this person either just in a location or a a position where 
they're able to kind of look in a direction where most times this ends up being just like forward and down, which essentially lines up with the rest of the body. Because again, if the eyes are up, the neck is going, the neck is most of the time going to follow the eyes. So um, lowest hanging fruit would be like where your eyes looking because your, your chin and your neck will follow that. And then if you're still kind of struggling, even with that good eye position, a lot of the times you can cue people to kind of, and you know, everyone can try this is like, just pull your chin back and kind of pull it down. Like you're making a double chin, but don't do it so aggressively that you get, you again, work through that and then move back to this extension because you'll tell some people to pack and they like with their chin back, like they're choking themselves. And then their head just goes back up from there. So it's this middle ground of like, just kind of gently packing the chin, pulling the back of the skull to the ceiling is one that I like for a lot of people. Um, and, and what that does is in, inherently, and anyone can test this is like, it limits the amount of extension that can occur in total through your spine. Cause what that chin pack movement actually is, is it's creating an upper cervical flexion, which just means the upper vertebra of the cervical spine are flexing over relative to the lower cervical spine, which is extending. So what that upper cervical flexion actually does is it creates uh, basically like a stopping point um, for the lumbar spine's ability to be able to extend. So if you have a upper cervical spine that's relatively flexed, you actually can't move past a certain point of extension in your lower back. And you, if you, if anyone who's listening wants to try this out, just like really, really extend your spine, feel how, feel how far you can go. Um, take note of that, even take a picture if you want, and then do this chin pack thing and keep your chin back and pull the back of your skull to the ceiling, do it again. And it's basically like, you can't move from that position. So that's the lowest hanging fruit for me in terms of like, just bracing in general. It's not telling people to squeeze. It's not telling people to keep their ribs down. It's just first addressing the most obvious thing. And the thing that can impact the most, um, the center of mass of the, of where the, where the thorax is and where the pelvis is, um, which is just addressing cervical spine, uh, position there. And that applies to the deadlift that applies to the squat that applies to any accessory based movement. You always want to be in this position where like you have the most amount of movement options available to you. So regardless of, um, the exercise barring the circumstances of like a bench, right. Where you, where you are constrained by the, the physical, I know the physical, um, aspect of the movement, um, or rather the external constraint of the movement. Um, this basically applies across all exercises. I know what um, our problem is on our bench, but our kids won't listen. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But some great points there, man. You made some great points. And I guess we'll transition to that next talking point. Like you said, <laughs> reference point. I, we talked about this position and people having an extremely long back and not being stacked and all these things that we've referenced. And it is a great point of view because I'm like, okay, look down. And then look how far out in front of the bar you are now. Uh, that's So I'm, I'm always cueing the eyes uh, as well because it's just – right here to right here is just such a great reference points for, for kids. I find, I find that I can cue them there a lot easier than I can downstream. And like you mm -hmm. talked about, it has consequences downstream. Uh, so it, it's a low hanging fruit to me. So I've been able to utilize that a lot. And it's whenever you're dealing with people, you have to think about, you know, how aware, how bodily aware that they are, because you could say flexion and extension and people might not even know what that means. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? So like what I've done is I've actually, like you've talked about some of these floor based things, like I've put people on, on the floor and we've talked about this is what flexion is and this is flexion in this region this is extension in this region uh and, it's, and then people find oh crap i can't even do it right here you know we've got limitations so it's just i feel like that's something extremely worthwhile to do with a novice 
uh, fitness uh, amateurs or whatever, or young kids, because uh, it mm-hmm. just teaches them in an unassuming way that's not just totally an overload of information. So kind of right. bouncing to that next talking point. Like I said, we're really good at deadlift. We're pretty dang good at squat. Uh, bench kills us sometimes. We're not going to get into the technicalities of that today. But anyways, as far as like the yielding and the overcoming, like I was rationalizing output and then having eccentric loading uh, because, you know, triphasic uh, in nature, a lot of the things that I rationalize. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what would make one perhaps a little bit more dominant in an output driven thing such as the deadlift and then what would also perhaps push them into that profile you understand what i'm saying versus being really good at accepting load uh, and then having to output right so we can think of two opposite sides of of the spectrum here right think of like a ballerina right someone who kind of behaves like gumby and can bend in all directions and then think of, you know, half Thor Bjornsson, right? Who's pulling whatever off. Of, I mean, not anymore because he lost essentially like half his body weight. <laughs> I know. What a, yeah, what, what a silly decision. You know, and think of half Thor, who's like this 200 kilo man who's pulling over a thousand pounds off the floor. Those are two pretty opposing structures. Those are two pretty opposing behavioral strategies from, from a tissue standpoint. And, you know, one of these people is much better at, um, elongating tissues. One person is much better at behaving very, very stiffly. And so when we talk about yielding and when we talk about overcoming, we're not necessarily just talking about force absorption or force production. We're talking about how the actual tissues are behaving because that's ultimately what determines like how, how well you can output. Yeah. And then how well you can elongate tissues or, or absorb force or whatever. So obviously the sort of optimal zone to be in is the place where you can do both, right? You can absorb force and you can create force. A lot of the times, if one of those things is limited, then both of those things are limited. Um, Kind of like, you know, a lot of other things that we've talked about operate. So, you know, with connective tissue and, and tissue yielding, we have a response in those connective tissues um, that has more to do with, again, that force absorption. And then with connective tissue overcoming uh, or force production, you have a situation where all tissues are behaving very, very stiffly. So when you're talking about a sport, let's say like powerlifting, you need enough of a yield to be able to get down into the squat, to be able to get down into the position of a deadlift or to touch the bar to your chest in the bench. But you need just enough to, to yield in terms of the range of motion to lengthen in terms of what gets you, you know, what gets your hip crease below your knee. Um, but for the most part, what you're ultimately trying to do, and you know, this is what you hear coaches shouting all the time at meets is like, stay tight, stay tight, squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. You're trying to maintain this action of the stiff connective tissue behavior. You're trying to maintain that overcoming tissue action as you move through the eccentric or the yielding portion of the range of motion. So where a lot of power lifters, you can actually see this in, or, you know, where you see this most often is like when people are doing warmups and when people have an empty bar in their back and let's say you're just, you know, you're talking about maybe a, a 400 kilo squatter, right? So this is one of the strongest squatters in the world you're working with. And you see him do a squat with a bar and you're like, Oh gosh, that doesn't look too good. And then he adds a plate and it looks a little bit better. And then he adds a plate and it looks a little better and a little better and a little better. And by the time, you know, he's at 300 kilos, it's like, now it's a perfect squat. Well, like, why did that happen? The reason it happened is because he's literally using the load to be able to create the yield to achieve the range of motion. 
And, you know, in certain contexts, that could be a really bad thing, like if you're a ballerina. But in certain contexts, like if you're a powerlifter, that can be a really, really good thing, a really helpful thing, right? Because you're working, you're essentially using the load to be able to create this range of motion while you're still holding on to all the stiffness that you created in the initial portion of the movement, let's say at the top of the movement when you braced or before you start to pull off the floor in a deadlift. So where this translates more to your initial question of like, you know, how can we best, um, you know, create situations where people can access overcoming and where they can access yielding. Well, a lot of the times it's just a, it's just a matter of like, what is the task that I'm asking this person to do? And can they complete the task? It's not so much, um, is this person, um, you know, because how do you, how do you assess someone's connective tissue behavior objectively, right? You can't. So, in a majority of cases, what I more so look to and what I find more helpful is like, okay, can they do these accessory movements that I'm asking them to do? Can they, can they perform exercises on one leg or like when they try to go onto one leg, is it a total dumpster fire, right? That's obviously a major red flag. So just looking to find more objective ways to, um, to look at these things I find is more helpful in actual practice. Um, conceptually the yielding overcoming thing can be really, really cool. And then a lot of cases you can use it for athletes who are field sport athletes, like overcoming and yielding isometrics come to mind there. Um, but that's kind of a different story. Um, but where this relates more to the, the powerlifting side of things and the, um, the hypertrophy side of things is like, you're always looking to probably create a little bit more tissue yielding, right? Because all of the overcoming strategies, all the stiffness is created really, really easily just by muscular contraction where a lot of people start to struggle, especially higher level powerlifters and bodybuilders is not being able to go to the other side of the spectrum in terms of those yielding actions. So essentially the more you can differentiate from the main movements, let's say you're dealing with a powerlifter, a lot of times the better, um, obviously not to the point where you're taking away from the output of those exercises, but what that might look like in practice is, okay, well, I'm doing a really, really hingy squat in my main movement. Maybe instead of doing a really hingy squat in my accessories, I do a really squatty squat where I make it a lot more quad biased. I make it a lot more um, upright as opposed to uh, less upright. And so essentially just differentiating them from the primary stimulus that they're achieving, I think a lot of times goes a really long way. And this is just simply the concept of like variability, where if I were working with someone who were on the opposite side of the spectrum, like the ballerina, I would probably give them exercises that would force them or challenge them to create more tissue stiffness, right? Like the strength-based movements, like the bilateral sagittal-based exercises like RDLs or squats, where they have to create a lot of internal pressure and where they have to create a lot of tissue sniffness, stiffness. So, um, you know, just being able to kind of differentiate, I think is, is the main thing for me, um, doing things on one leg versus doing things on two legs, um, being able to create tension in specific places that you normally wouldn't on the main movement too, is very helpful. So everyone typically feels better when they have more hamstrings. Why is that? Well, in most powerlifting movements, you don't really get a lot of hamstrings, uh, at least in isolation and, uh, in, in specific growth. So hopefully that covers a good amount of what you're looking for. Oh, that was all great. I just, and actually I think what we'll end up doing, <clears throat> excuse me, what we'll end up doing here is I'll just make a couple points here. And then if we can just kind of cap that one off, that's probably where we'll end. Uh, and I'll give mm -hmm. you a chance to talk about your stuff, uh, I hope to have you back on because I feel like there's a lot of other meat on the bone in other places, yeah, so maybe in the future. But uh, the brain, again, I keep coming back to the brain because I'm 
we're talking a lot of biomechanical processes here in the body and things, but the brain conserves energy as well. Like we're from a survival standpoint, our brain's just actually saying, how much do I need to recruit to get this done? Uh, mm. If we're being honest as movement professionals and people that are actually trying to develop people athletically, we're trying to trick the brain to say, go, 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 and don't be lazy and don't conserve energy because that's just how we've evolved. Right. Uh, so that's something that stands out. Like you're talking about lowering with 135 versus lowering with 350 and things such as that. Also actively pulling into the movement. Like it's amazing whenever you actually teach people to like act actively activate as they pull and you teach them not to be Gumby in the movement to me, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and that's something you could get into. You see some powers are extremely like, there's like they're power lifters. My guys lift a little bit different uh, because a lot of them are athletes. So they have just a lot of like raw output and power. But uh, you see them store, 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 like you're talking about keeping the tension. And I see that. And it's, I was trying to explain that to my kids actually uh, yesterday. Uh, so actively pulling into the movement and having purpose with that. Uh, and there's a variety of ways I try and teach that. But you mentioned because I do typically focus on athletic development. And I'm not talking that powerlifting is not athletic, but uh, I'm talking about football, field based sports and things like that uh mm -hmm. so i'd like to talk about the overcoming and the yielding and you kind of uh mentioned that as you were referencing that point but how could we stack training to help kids be more resilient in the on the field as far as overcoming and yielding uh methods uh you know to be more resilient towards injury because maybe you lift a lot of heavyweights uh, in a particular point of the year. Give me some auxiliaries, I guess, is what I'm saying that could make kids more optimal uh, and better movers. Yeah. So with those field sport athletes, a lot of times what you're looking for is being able to absorb and create force simultaneously. So, you know, if I am going into a cut and I'm juking someone and I'm a tailback and I run, you know, a four second 40, <laughs> I go into the cut, I juke someone, and the way that I go into the cut is through force absorption. But as soon as I start to absorb force, I need to begin to create it in the opposite direction or else I fall over to that side. So that's a specific example. And I use a specific example because everything is always going to be task specific. So the drills that you would give potentially, um, you know, a linebacker in football should be probably very divergent from the drills that you give a pitcher in the MLB, right? You know, we could get more specific with that, but as a general rule, with all those field sports, uh, field sport based um, applications, I think something that's really, really helpful just because we're looking for practical application here is training people at, at least at first um, in split stances. So that could mean front to back staggered. That could mean side to side staggered. That could mean, um, you know, like retro step staggered, any of those kinds of, of movements where you're, you're putting more weight onto one segment of the body relative to another. Um, those I find at least theoretically have very, very strong applications to, um, actual sports and, and actual, uh, sports specific training. So an example of that, you know, with a yielding isometric, let's say could be like, I get into a split squat, I hold dumbbells at my sides and I basically just hold an isometric split squat to teach those, those tissues to kind of yield and absorb that force that I'm asking them uh, and to kind of hold on to that tension in that specific position as I do that. And then an overcoming action could be, well, like, okay, maybe instead of that split stance ISO where I'm just holding dumbbells, maybe I hold a barbell or I have a barbell on my back and I'm in that same split stance, but now I'm pushing up against a rack where the rack is immovable, but I'm exerting as much force as humanly possible 
to try to move that rack, right? I'm not going to go anywhere, but that's those, those are kind of two like opposite sides of the spectrum that you could, you could call upon for the same exact movement. Um, and that applies across all exercises that applies across all planes specifically that you're looking to train. Um, so a lot of times for those field sport athletes, it has less to do with like mimicking the exact movements that they do and more so just to kind of generally apply those principles to, okay, let me put more weight on a single leg and then let me perform an ISO, uh, whether it's yielding or, or overcoming, um, and to kind of, um, you know, just piggyback off of that too, opposite side of the spectrum or opposite side of the, the coin there is like, well, when do I start to get more dynamic with these things? So, you know, in the case of the, just to kind of continue to use the split stance, um, line of thinking there, maybe a, in the initial phases of someone learning a, a movement, they do the isometrics because just inherently those kinds of movements have to be less complex than something more dynamic. And so initially I'll start with the split stance ISO, maybe it's yielding, maybe I work toward an overcoming dependent upon what I'm, what I'm looking for. And then after that, maybe I look to get them actually jumping. So for instance, uh, just staying with the split stance example, what you could do is have someone just maybe they're holding no weights and maybe what they're doing is working on jumps starting from a, a split stance position. So now instead of picking one side of the coin or another, instead of choosing the yielding or the, the overcoming, I'm actually combining the two wherein on upon landing, I have to work on yielding and absorbing force. And upon jumping, I have to create the overcoming action. So a lot of different ways that you can go about that. Um, and you could use more specific examples that would be more applicable to sport, like doing something similar, but in a side to side fashion, uh, in a lateral fashion, as opposed to a more sagittal fashion. Um, but generally speaking, hopefully that makes sense in terms of, you know, line of progression or, or uh, series of progressions and line of thinking because you can do a lot of different things with a lot of different people. Uh, but generally speaking for, for field sports, I say doing stuff on one leg is probably most beneficial for a lot of different reasons, but those connect training, those connective tissue properties, just being one of them. So many good things that you said there. And I'll just kind of, again, uh, verify some of the things that like you, first off, you just like validated a lot of things that I do with my kids, uh, especially in an early stage coming out of a season. So that's great to hear. And, you know, something we won't get into today, but gate becomes increasingly important to me. You mentioned single leg, and we're not going to get into all these different things, but gait becomes extremely important to me because in the active sport, it's really all about gait, uh, and it's all about running and speed and all these different things. The weight room is truly a means to an end. It's not the end of everything uh, exactly. in, in for, in a, for sports. Uh, just a couple of things to like add uh, to that that probably makes sense for a lot of people here. Number one, you spoke to the fact that <clears throat> you don't mimic the sport in specificity. Uh, yeah, it's, sure, it's great. But if you want to get that specific as far as playing the sport, go play the sport. It doesn't have to look exactly like it. That's how people end up doing things that look ridiculous in the weight room and, and with training means. So I wanted to say that too. And then the last thing I feel like is why this is such a good tool with the isometrics and other things, fatigue, fatigue. And there's a time I feel like we're yeah. so, we're so uh, the way fatigue can be poured on can be dangerous. I'm always speaking of volume and, and the effective dose and all these different things. Fatigue can be such a beneficial tool. This is coming straight from, you know, the Stephen Jones podcast that I have. Fatigue is such a great opportunity for someone to learn and for us to actually see things as a coach uh, from the external as well. So it's a great opportunity for motor learning. And you spoke to doing 
a yielding ISO, which is number one, making your athlete aware of the way that their body moves in space while working on all these other internal structures that we've talked about. And then once they step away from that, uh, making them jump, making them do things in a safe manner under a fatigue state could actually drive them towards better adaptations that would transfer over to sport in the long haul uh, within whenever it's intelligently planned. So that's something that I also consider to be extremely important. And I feel like that was an important talking point to kind of piggyback off of what you said. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, and I think the idea of just, you know, the discussion surrounding fatigue in general, I think it's really important because I think the more and more advanced that any athlete, whether they're a field sport athlete or a power lifter or bodybuilder becomes, the more you have to kind of look for ways to create um, inherent limitations as far as output goes in those athletes or in those movements rather. So an example that I have talked about a lot, actually, um, just kind of with some of my buddies is like the idea of, you, you always see a lot of these professional athletes doing ridiculous exercises. And a lot of times it's like the first example that comes to mind is like a running back in the NFL, who's like bouncing on a BOSU ball and like throwing tennis balls and bouncing on one leg. And, you know, it's difficult to look at that and, and take it seriously. But when you really think about it and when you really look at what the movement is doing, well, it's, it's doing basically nothing, right? So it's generating no fatigue. So if this person is in season and they're experiencing tons of stress in the field, they might think that this exercise or these series of exercises is some sort of magic simply because they're like, they're, they're moving, right? So they're, they're, being active, you could basically just consider those kinds of things like active recovery. And, you know, the, you see this a lot too with powerlifters to, to draw upon a more like weight room specific example where people will change whatever variation they're doing and experience tons of gains on their, on their main movement. And I'm not saying that that couldn't create a really positive adaptation, but maybe the variation that they switched to was just a variation where they can't use as much load. Um, And so as a consequence, they're actually generating less fatigue, which gives them more room, let's say on their primary day to create output. Right. So it's like, you know, chicken or the egg, right? Like you don't know what is causing what necessarily, but in a lot of those cases, when you're dealing with fatigue, a lot of the times, especially with higher level athletes, it's just like, okay, how do I get them some form of a stimulus without completely screwing them up without all of these maladaptive side effects. Um, and, And those kinds of ridiculous drills actually kind of serve as, something that is doing so little that they're actually probably um, enhancing their recovery just by getting some form of movement in, but by not really fatiguing or stimulating anything in particular. Yeah, that's a great, that's that's a great analogy there. So the last thing I'm going to give you an opportunity to do is tell uh, people where they can find you and then talk about actually what you have coming out. So people understand what it is. I'm going to read a quote before you, before you go, because uh, I love this quote and it makes sense. So let me just kind of segue this to you after I read this. It says, everyone wants to sell you on the idea that they have the best or most accurate answers. We're all just guessing. Some guesses are better than others. But you should be aware of anyone that seems entirely certain about anything. So I'm going to segue it over to you. Uh, This guy's going to try and probably sell you something in the future. But I tell you, listening to this conversation He's got things that are worthwhile to sell you. So I, I'm putting my stamp of approval on this guy's work and everything that he puts out there. I don't know how much that means, but what I'm saying is you're right about that. And I feel like that's flowed through the entire conversation, but I'm just throwing that to you because I, I find it ironic and I find it funny, but I know you're going to be uh, making some moves, making some steps. So awesome for you. And the dude's got an awesome uh, outlook on things. So just passing it to you, man. 
Well, thanks, man. I appreciate the kind words. For those of you who don't know, that was a Ben quote, um, <laughs> directly drawn <laughs> from the IG. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to find me on IG, it's basically just my name. Pretty simple. Uh, all the information as far as like where you can find more long form content is going to be at the old link in bio. Um, I do a lot of posting on Instagram, a lot of free content, but that is something that I actually am starting up this following, uh, Monday, which would actually be tomorrow. Um, first episode, um, of this, this educational platform that I briefly mentioned earlier is going to go up. And basically what that is, is just a way for people to learn a little bit more about whatever they want. So what that means more specifically is it's going to be a platform that's interactive. And so, you know, I'm actually not necessarily trying to sell you or sell anyone on the information itself, but rather the experience of being able to have a conversation with someone who might know something that you don't. And that applies to me as well, right? Like all these people who are going to be potentially joining this group, which by the way, we are going to have a Slack channel. We're going to have a Slack group where conversations can happen. And there's going to be a weekly zoom call that's actually live um, to reflect on the lecture portion of the week. So, uh, for instance, this first week, I obviously had to choose the topic because, um, people are, are signing up and like getting into the Slack group. Um, but what I'm looking for moving forward is just like, I'll probably have a number of people submit, you know, just on a Q and a, like a number of questions within the actual Slack group. And then I'll narrow the questions down and the people will actually be choosing which topics that I cover in the following week's video. And then once the following week's video goes up, what will happen is after people watch that, we'll have a, a live Zoom call in somewhere in the middle of the week where people can actually interact with me live, ask questions, go over any of the, any of the things, the concerns that come up with that week's video. Um, and then tackle those topics potentially on a more specific level uh, in different ways that might work better for certain individuals relative to others. So um, it's essentially just this educational platform that I want to make super interactive because I think that that's something that's currently kind of lacking in the fitness industry is like just forms of content that go back and forth consistently as opposed to you know, being something that's more unidirectional, where it's just like a teacher giving you a module or uh, an, an expert in, in whatever field, just kind of writing something out for people to read and not necessarily respond to. So um, that will be called unlimited education um, because, you know, the, uh, the potential, the potential of you is unlimited uh, inherently. So, yeah, I mean, besides that, um, that's pretty much all that I have from, uh, from a pl self plugging standpoint. And yeah, I mean, thanks for, thanks for having me on, give me an opportunity to, to ramble on about a few different topics here and you know, hopefully we can do it again. Again, if you follow him on Instagram, you answer so many questions, uh, in stories as well. Like I've, you know, I've, I love reading all those different things, uh, because people ask questions and then you provide really good short form answers that might get people's minds uh, turning. So that's kind of where I familiarize myself with you first. And uh, I'm going to link your Instagram and then I will be able to link your stuff as well. Uh, it'll be coming out in February. So yes, I'll be able to link you. Uh, so everybody check the show notes for all this stuff. It's, it's worthwhile. Uh, he's got a lot of great content. So check for the uh, Instagram account and then also check for his new offering as well. So Ben, again, thank you. It's been an honor. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you, Jesse. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If it piqued your interest, check the show notes for links to Ben's new platform, as well as Instagram account. 
Don't forget to take advantage of my code FTGUPOD15 for the virtual speed clinic. Links are also in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.